Hi everybody and welcome to the third ever Tom Williams podcast. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for joining us. Thank you if it's the uh, first time you've ever listened. Um, I, we are in the middle of a tour at the moment. Last week we played Guildford, the Boiler Room, Southampton Joiners and a really fun, noisy gig at the Printworks in Hastings on Friday night, which I finally recovered from, but it was a blast. So thank you so much everybody that came out to any of those three shows. Um, This week, Friday, we're playing Huddersfield, the Parish. Uh, Saturday, we're playing Stockton-on-Tees, the Georgian Theatre. And Sunday, we play the Horn in St Albans. So if we're coming near you, grab some tickets, bring some friends who have never heard of us before, and come and say hi after the show. That's actually the most important bit. Um, Yeah, thanks. That would be great. Um, This week, we've got a great chat with Trevor Moss and Hannah Lou. They are a folk duo that have been together since, well, been together in one way or another since 2007, Um, but you'll find out more about that in um, in the interview. They've had an amazing career, they continue to have an amazing career, they've worked with everybody from... Um, from youth to Ethan Johns and they've toured with everybody from Tori Amos to The Good, The Bad, The Queen and Loudon Wainwright and much more. They've played the Grand Ole Opry and the Royal Albert Hall and ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't get better than that. Um, We've got a great chat coming up. Their son Jesse came round to the flat as well. Sarah was entertaining Jesse with some Spider-Man drawings. Um, So there's lots of baby babbling in the background, which is great. Um, and uh, they even play a song off their new album, Fair Lady London, at the end as well. So stick around for that. Um, yeah, make sure you follow them on socials and see when they're playing near you, especially if you're down in Hastings. Uh, they run the Lantern Society, which is an acoustic songwriting night um, on the first Thursday of each month, I think, off the top of my head, at the Printworks, uh, downstairs in the bar. Um, so same venue that we just played on Friday. Um, yeah, enjoy the chat. It was great to finally get a chance to chat to them. I normally only ever see them at gigs and, you know, we're both sipping something rubbish like warm red stripe out of a can and shouting at each other over the music. Or um, So it was great to actually have a chat and talk, um, talk through all the amazing things that they've done. And um, I think they've done four or five records on their own and there's also the Indigo Moss album as well. But you will find out more about that. So enjoy. Our chat with Trevor Moss and Hannah Lou. We should maybe explain that we've got Jesse in there. Yeah. 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 I mean, if you know, they could go in a different room if you wouldn't get him on the left of him. No, it's good. Has he, has he ever got onto any recordings? Um. No. 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 In film Not that we've kept. No, not that we've kept. Do you ever record at home or do demos or, or, or yeah. have gurglings in the background that, that yeah. you're yeah. keeping on? on? When you did your solo EP, I think he snuck onto one of those <laughs> in the background, yeah. Hmm. It must be actually, it's, it's quite nice. I mean, it, although, because I imagine at the time, it's maybe a bit of, you have to make a decision whether to keep it, but actually, you probably could sort of notice, you can probably remember his age by the sounds he was making. Yeah, it's just like, like him being in our tour films and big films we're making. Yeah. Let's quickly go back to the beginning. You met at Goldsmiths. We did. What were you... Because um, I went to art school as well. What kind of art were you guys making when you were at Goldsmiths? Well, I did fine art, but I wasn't really making much. I see. <laughs> um, were you just there to be a rock star? Well, 
like most people. Yeah. <laughs> I went I, I went there with the intention of doing fine art and ended up ended up being a rock star, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so do you guys meet each other? Were you in the same year? Uh, yeah, we weren't studying the same thing. I was, oh, I see. I was studying theatre studies. Oh. Uh, we met in our halls of residence in our first week, I think. Oh, I see. Lived upstairs. 18 years old. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Fresh as week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And had you both come from sort of similar backgrounds school-wise? Because, Trevor, you had something with the... Didn't you? Wasn't your dad in the army or something? My dad's, my dad's in the MOD. We had quite different upbringings. Yeah. So, yeah, he was in the MOD, so he worked alongside the army. So had you so been I in moved. a boarding school before uni? Or? No, no boarding school, but I'd, we, but we just moved every three years. So I lived in Germany, lived in Munich for a while, lived in Mönchengladbach for a while. We lived, I lived in Liverpool and three or four different places in the south coast and Wiltshire and back and forth. So I moved, I've been to sort of 12 different schools. Yeah. And uh, Hannah went... Stayed, lived in one house a whole life. Wow! <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't any sort of great you excitement of like suddenly being away from home or being at uni. There wasn't some sort of big bohemian sort of teenage rebellion going on. I think me going to art school was the rebellion. I was all set to be an architect. Really? That was the plan. I did oh. the A levels, but but I'd always done art throughout my life. Your poor parents. And I got <laughs> exactly. And I got into music. You know, when I was sort of sixteen, seventeen, and started playing in grunge bands and punk bands and things. Yeah. And it was probably about you know, six months before going to university. I just went, oh, actually, I, I don't really want to be an architect. I never have. Yeah. You know, just doing the right thing. I thought, you, you, you know what, I'm going to go to art school. Work I, experience changed your mind. Oh, yeah, just some with architects. And you just, it was the longest week of my life. It was just <laughs> awful. Yeah. So, yeah, we went to, went to art school. And nearly nearly disowned. That's that, yeah. That's quite a big conversation, isn't it? Mum Mom and Dad, I want to do art. Mm. I moved to London. I was in Chippenham at the time, so it's a, a town in Wiltshire. Yeah. And not much goes on there you know so the idea of packing up and leaving for London especially now you know now we've got kids the idea of having an 18 year old who's never really been to a big city let alone tried to live in one and then you drop them off in New Cross and go fend for yourself I'm already thinking I don't know how mm-hmm. I'm going to cope with that if Jesse wants to you're not doing it right you're going, <laughs> you're going to a small college in a small town yeah. I don't know how he survived my parents are both from London so oh, I, I don't think they were that bothered about me growing up <laughs> But theatre studies, you know, the school school supports theatre and drama so much, don't they, at schools? And it's, I don't know if they do much now, but uh, yeah. then. Mm. And what, what, were you, what were you hoping to do with theatre studies? Were you hoping no, to just, be an actress? Or? No, 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 I just, um, just... I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just really enjoyed it. The, the course there is a... It's an academic course, so it's very much like an English literature course, but just studying plays, though. So just really wanted to study. I really liked um, post-war British theatre and post-colonial theatre, so that's why I specialised in at uni and did a bit of directing. And, and had you both gone there as songwriters? Had you both taken guitars to halls? Or? Yeah, well, I did. Um, I mean, my mum's a folk singer and I was in some bands as a teenager and I wrote songs and so I took my guitar up. Trevor had just been in, in a grunge band. So the best band in the world ever. Yeah. What was it? We were called Never Been Washed. <laughs> <laughs> and we did about three gigs. And I have no question if we'd carried on, we'd have done it. <laughs> <laughs> and then we quickly met in halls and you bought an acoustic guitar so we could start playing. Yeah, I bought together. an acoustic guitar so I could um, casually wander into a kitchen where she used to play and go, oh, hi, I, I play. said maybe. I, I, play, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I play as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So did you sell the Yamaha Pacifica Strat or whatever you had? Yeah. I had my, 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 my Squire Strat, which I've still got. Now, I, now yeah. I teach and I sort of help parents find, you know, the, get the first guitar for kids. Squire Strat is such a solid choice. Yeah. And, you, and so many parents, you know, obviously there's different financial constraints, but like... 
you, you feel like grabbing a parent by the shoulders and you say, look, for the £45 difference, mm-hmm. this Tokai Telecaster is not going to... Or like, now it's Stag. Stag is like the word. Yeah. This Stag Telecaster is not going to do it. But I think Ed O'Brien played his Squire Strap from school even on the first Radiohead album. Yeah, yeah. It's just, they're just the best. And you can also... The, the best thing is when kids get the starter pack with the little amp. That's what and I the, Did you? Yeah, yeah, you even Argos. get a pick as well. Yeah, yeah you, mm-hmm. got, you got like, yeah, well, yeah, from Argos, a little, a little Fender Frontman 15. Yeah. And a Squire Bullet Strat. In fact, mine's quite a special one because it says uh, on the back, it's the 20-year anniversary of Squire. Wow. So, so And they, I think it was 80... I can't remember what it was now, but... Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah you, got, you got a little fabric gig bag with it as well. Yeah. And then, how, and then how long was it at Goldsmiths before you started singing together? Um, I think we had our first gig at the very end of our first year. Oh, wow. My sister's birthday party. And then in our second year, we started a band. And by the third year, we were working on a It's like a Craig album. David song, isn't it? <laughs> first yeah. year. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, by the third year, we were signed to a label and recording an album. So oh, was that Butterfly? Yeah. yeah, so we stopped paying attention to our degrees. But was that... Was that um, was that Indigo Moss? That was Indigo Moss, yeah. So we. Um, so was it just you two, or was it the whole band? No, it was a full band. So there were at one. There was usually five of us. There was like a core, four or five, and then we, we often had a fiddle player that sort of came and went. So. And just for context, what year is this? Well, our album came out in two thousand and seven. Yeah. So. Well, you need two thousand three to two thousand six. Um, two thousand seven, because. Yeah. So. Yeah, so the album, we recorded the album. Next, no, we were recording the album during my degree show because I. Wow. Uh, everyone's stressing out about degree shows. Oh, and the hang. The exactly, hang. Exactly. Have you plastered it? Have, uh, have you sanded and repainted your wall yet? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we were, record, we were recording in dead time at Damon Albarn's studio. Amazing. And because the guy who signed us to Butterfly was Simon Tong from The Verve. Who's in The Gorillas. Who's in The Gorillas and he's in Good, the Bad, and the Queen and things. Yeah. And um, the only dead time they had was two weeks. Bang on the two weeks that you are putting up your degree show, so I I spent all, the whole time recording an album, and then the whole band came in and put the, put the show up in like two days. Wow! And uh, and is that the same yeah. studio he's in now? Uh, no, he's, he's this, this was in the original thirteen studio, but okay. the album where they did the album was, was done. In. But now they've moved. They've got like a some custom built place right. somewhere. But this used to be in a uh, bus space studios. And what are your memories of that time now on that first album? Because you did, you had an amazing sort of radio coverage and press coverage, and mm. I think I think it's quite easy, isn't it, when you're sort of in the middle of a campaign to always be frustrated and reaching for a bit more. But it's sometimes nice to sort of look back and recognise that actually you did some pretty mm. some amazing things. Look yeah. back and cry, really. No, no. <laughs> I, I think it's just, especially when you're a kid and it's the first thing that's ever happened, and everyone gets carried away. And being, I mean, do you mean the band gets carried away? We're going to do it, boys. That kind no, of thing. No, people like, around you. Right. I mean, you don't know what level it's at. You know, you just see the people around you. Other bands that you're hanging out with are always just one little step ahead. Yeah. And every time you move forward and move up, you naturally have new peers who are all that little step ahead of you, and you yeah. think, well, we're better than them. You know. And, yeah. then, and then everyone's getting carried away, and things are happening, and then you get frustrated, and you know, you might get a page spread in enemy but you're upset because that band you just whooped two weeks ago have got a five page spread right and now and nowadays you're like i can't even get an email to reply to get a review you know no 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 <laughs> but you just yeah yeah i think you, you have to you have to look back and sort of yeah take on the chin a little the whole hype machine yeah and just the 
you don't realise quite what a, you know, the currency of youth. Yeah. You know, you just think, geez, like we could barely play. But then also the simplicity of it, though. You know, you might, we, might have, we might not have had anything like the technical ability then, but I fully recognise that our lack of knowledge probably just gave us a real focus on trying to be original and trying to be... But also an energy mm. in the recordings that you can mm. never... I so notice... Um, I had a particularly narcissistic five hours in the car about two years ago where I was about to go up to Leeds Beckett University to start doing an artist in residence course. I was going to be doing some recording with some kids. Students are not kids, they're probably like 23. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to listen to everything I've ever recorded that's on Spotify. Wow. And I listened to from like 2007 to 2015. And even though the songs made me cringe and the, the, the weird mockney accent I was singing <laughs> made me want to just curl up and die, there's an energy there yeah. that is just, when you're young, you just play everything so fast. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then you sort of kind of understand this kind of currency of youth, you know what I mean? This kind of... Because there is something when everyone's a bit out of tune and everyone's a bit naive and... You know what I mean? There is yeah. something there. But that album, didn't you, you? So you were you were recording at Damon Albarn's studio, but didn't you didn't you do the bits of that album at Olympic as well? We did sessions in the in the in the build up to that. When we first signed to Butterfly, we started doing some recording with Youth and Youth from Killing Joke. Yeah. And we did three sessions at Olympic. What was that like? And uh, awful. Really? Just <laughs> awful. Just the wor- the worst. But I mean, this experience. is the Who, Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones. Surely this yeah. is like. I was never interested in that. I just really? sort of, you know, let's get on with it, you know. It was just sort of a bit just sterile and youth, sub- you know. <laughs> it just it wasn't a good environment and. We didn't really come out of it with anything we've ever, we've ever used. Was there a push and pull we... between what the label thought the band should be sounding like on the record and what you guys wanted Not to... Not so much with the first album. I think everybody was really behind it with the first album. It's one of the reasons why we didn't carry on. I think by the time it comes to the second album, I don't know, maybe the label weren't feeling as flush as they had been. And I think a lot of, a lot of the artists on the label found themselves in constant conversations about what they should be doing and... That, that sort of but they, but they liked the live show on the first record, and they were keen to just capture that. Or yeah, or? yeah, and and even in the Olympic, we were just all playing live. And, and the first album we recorded everything live. Just the whole band. We didn't came. overdub anything. And I think I overdubbed a bit of slide guitar, but that was it. That Indigo Moss album is all. And that's the other thing that now I impresses me the most. At the time, I was really strict. I want to record live. That's it. I don't want to so play where did separately. That come from because that's 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 been all through your career, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it just came from, you know, I've just. Grown up watching music things, watching documentaries, watching Imagine being recorded, watching all that yeah. stuff, and they always played together. Yeah. And also, you know, by that point, we would sort of fall in love with, you know, bands like the Old Medicine Show and people mm. like that. And they always recorded everything live. And I just that's why I wanted to do it. I've all I've never ever recorded a track with a click. I've always never done it. No. And now, having stuck to my guns on that first record even though Simon Tong was saying like you're really limiting yourself with the record and I mean, me saying I don't care in terms you know? of isolation and leakage or just or in terms of we can do more with this if we you know if we record things separately or if, yeah. and I just said well I, I just want to and, and I've maintained this attitude throughout it but if it's not if it's not what we do then I don't want it on there yeah. And if it's what we do, then we may as well just do it together, you know. Yeah. If we're having some technical problem, then, you know, we can replace them if we need to, but let's get a take together. And listening back to that first record now, that's what still in, still sort of impresses me, even if, you know, you see the how bad some of the lyrics are and things. You, 
you sort of think, you know, we would, this is live, you know. Yeah. It still impresses me now, really. Yeah. Because c- my memory of the band was always a bit like making a record. You, you're always concentrating on details yeah. and just things are jumping out at you. And, and obsessing on the negatives. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I always, always thought that our band was never tight. I was always just putting more and more and more pressure on me and on everyone else. I was just thought we weren't good enough. And now I listen to it back and think like, Jeez, you know, <laughs> you should have just had more fun, you know. Yeah. Mm. So, and then at this time, had you already already started things like Lantern? There was a, um, I think that we just we started playing more as a duo with the band, uh, still as Indio Moss, but more as a duo when we started the Lantern, didn't we? Yeah. So Lantern. I mean, mm. it should be said that Lantern is how I know you guys. Lantern's an acoustic. Actually, it's not really, it doesn't have to be acoustic, but it's definitely a songwriter. We call writer. it the Lantern Society Acoustic Club, but yeah, oh, the emphasis really is on, on songwriters. It's sort of a bit like a traditional folk club, but a, a turn up and play yeah. acoustic club. But yeah, we started that at the Betsy Trotwood in London. But upstairs. Well, that was 2007, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, because we used to play at the Betsy, but we used to play downstairs because it was yeah, about 35 capacity. I mean, yeah. it's 12 capacity. <laughs> um, and that, that's, that was an amazing place. And then, and, and then. And then when was the first Trevor Moss and Hannah Lou album then? Well, we moved out of London when we got married, so 2008. So it was only a year after Indigo Moss's album came yeah, out that we'd already fast, given it, it all up and mm. sacked the managers, got rid of the band and moved out of town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Got married, joined Danny and the Champions of the World, did a lot of touring with Danny and the Champs. Um, I didn't realise they'd been going on for so long either. Yeah, and actually we joined them when they were touring their first album, so we weren't around when they were recording their first album. Um, and then we then we decided to then we because well, they were with Loose, so we did our first duo album with Loose, and it took us a couple of years to record. So we were recording that with Danny producing and Romeo from the Magic Numbers producing, and oh, we were wow. doing that in the. Re- in I love that first Magic Numbers record. Yeah, it's really yeah. so we were doing it in the Magic Numbers studio in their downtime, which was like an odd overnight stint once every four months. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it took us like two years to do that. So that was released in 2010. Yeah, I think we did three albums in three years and. 10, 11 and 12 yeah because Loose now is very very Americana isn't it has, has it always mm. been like it always that ha- it yeah. always has been there haven't been that many British bands on it really that there have been no, a few there, was that, there was that brilliant Courtney Marie Andrews record a couple of years ago that was yeah. fantastic yeah. and isn't it is the new William the Conqueror not on Loose yeah it is yeah. oh is it yeah and we, when we first joined them Blanche had been on them that was, we were big fans of Blanche yeah that was the reason why we wanted to be on Loose was because we we saw Blanche supporting the White Stripes at, oh, wow. Alex- at Alexandra Palace. Wow. And Blanche were amazing. And they were very much were, sort of an electric country band. They were a big influence on Indigo Moss. Massive influence on us, yeah. And then they were signed to Loose. So we went after them. So mm. you, so I want to quickly just rewind slightly because I want to talk about um, the banjo. You once told me an amazing story about Mumford and Sons <laughs> and the banjo, which you have to tell again verbatim. Yeah. But was that at one of the Lantern shows? No. Or was that Slaughtered Lamb or something? No, th- this was at what inspired the Lantern. This was at a club called The Easy Come, which yeah. was run by Andy Hankdog. Still is every Wednesday. It's been running for about 30 years now. Indy Hankdog. Um, a- and Andy Hankdog. Andy Hankdog. He was in a band called The Hank Dogs, okay. which <laughs> Lily Ramona was also in. Right. Who plays at the Lantern, who we're in another band with. She lives about 100 yards that way now as well. Wow. And, um, the Hank Dogs are legendary. Yeah, the Hank Dogs are sort of one of, that's probably one of the first sort of alt country sort of bands, really. Yeah. And um, so he ran. He still runs this club, club called the Easy Come, and we used to play there in South London. We used to be at the Ivy House in those days, and uh, we played there almost every week. 
and then um, we wanted somewhere north of the river that had a similar sort of ethos, really. Because we were used to playing open mics in town. They're just rubbish when you you have to get there at like four in the afternoon and sign up and everyone plays and leaves. And And the telly's still on the football. Football's still on the telly behind you. (laughs) People tuning up in the toilets and everyone's just there to be seen rather rather than... No one's going to see... As if like a record executive, I'll go and hang out at the Spice of Life open mic. It's just nonsense. (laughs) So we were just fed up with that. So we we started the Lantern Society based on the Easy Come. But yeah, the the banjo story. It was. Um, we don't know if it's true. It's, it, it's become sort of a. <laughs> I thought a, it happened to you. It's, it did. It did happen to me. It's, it's become sort of apocryphal because I don't. It's one of those things where I don't remember the actual incident, but it's it's very feasible. And Andy Hankdog, who runs the night, and someone else. Um, they tell the they, story. They tell. The they right, tell. So the that's story. the disclaimer. That's the disclaimer. <laughs> is, it could be. It could be complete nonsense. Sure. It's the sort of thing that may... Those days are a bit of a blur. Right. But Andy remembers it, and some other people have we told me it too. We can find this out. We're one handshake away from Mumford's. Well, we were, talk, we were talking about this yeah. to John Kennedy the other, the other week, because um, we were supposed to be in on the session a couple of weeks earlier, but we, we both got the same cold, I think, knocked you out yeah, for a few yeah. months. So we were going to be doing a show with him the same day as Mumford had a special on. Oh, like an album uh, playback with or something, yeah. So we could have finally put this story to bed, but because we got ill, we couldn't, which is probably oh. for the best. Anyway, the story... You don't want to know who's We were playing with our bluegrass band at the Easy Come, supported by... Not supported, but yeah, the, also, Line, also, the turning, with, yeah. also turning up on that night was Marcus and one of the others. Just one of the others. One of the others. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> just, just playing as, um, uh, just as a duo with acoustic guitars. Yeah. And at the end of the show, one of them said what's that can I have a go and I said it's a banjo and then they played it that's the story I don't want to check if and that's true <laughs> Andy remember, and Andy claims to have seen them since and they said we played a banjo at your place for the first time which would have been Andy our banjo but Andy does say a lot of things <laughs> the thing that's weird about that story is it could be true it could but be but also like surely he's heard what a banjo sounds like before well, you know be, what I mean but, but in those days that wasn't it. it in those days you'd play around London and no one knew what it was no one knew what it was everyone was like oh, is that a mandolin or what is it yeah or, no I guess that I, and, th- I was just trying to quickly think of like banjo on like FM radio it's probably just Old Man by Neil Young or Travis had a banjo for oh it. that's true on Sing yeah is it Sing mm. well, I, I won't proclaim even if I knew I wouldn't say I did oh I love Travis <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no. In, in in those days, there was no no one knew what it was, and yeah. and there wasn't the same sort of tribalism that seemed to happen in music nights. Everyone just played the barfly, so it'd be like three oh, bands barfly, that were all like the Libertines, and yeah. then us playing banjos. Like you didn't have this like there wasn't sort of alt country nights or things happening, or yeah. it was just club fandango, and you'd turn up and it would oh, be a three band fandango. Band. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was that at the Buffalo Bar? It was that all Steve Lamacks one? It went all over the place, I think. I think we played Club Fandango quite a few places, like at the Amersham Arms, they used to run one there, and the, I think the Dublin Castle used to have a Fandango. I think that's the Fandango. first time we met Steve Lamac. Right. And um, he invited us for a drink at the pub next door, and he ordered, he ordered a vodka and Coke, and I remember thinking, who drinks vodka and Coke? <laughs> and we had a song out at the time called Train Station Car Park, which was terrible song and it, the premise was I'm waiting for my dad in the train station car park that was kind of the chorus and then the verses where it's like a verse about each family member and Steve said do you know what you guys should do you should do a tour of train station car parks <laughs> <laughs> it would be great local press will go wild we were like no Steve I don't want to do that yeah 
Um, so you moved down to Hastings in 2008 when you got married? No. Or you moved actually, out of London moved in 2008? moved back to Kent where, where, where I grew up. Yeah. And then just spent a lot of time touring. Um, but yeah, we didn't move down here till 2012. Mm, yeah. And when, you, the and when you recorded this, the, the first um, Trevor Moss Hallelujah, what do you abbreviate that to? I know, it's annoying, isn't it? Do you say T-M-A-H-L? Tamahal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just it's long. It it's was a good name. I don't know why we thought of it. Yeah, well, Lewis wanted us to keep the Indigo Moss name. Right. Which is, here's a secret, Moss ain't my real name. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was um, it was sort of a compromise that happened through Lewis because with, in Indigo Moss days, we were doing that whole sort of family band thing and, yeah. pre- and pretending we were all called Moss. Living in, living in a shoe together. Exactly. Yeah. And um, in fact, Phil Jupiter's once... Proclaimed, he changed his name. He said he changed his name to Moss for the week because he, he, want, he wanted to be in our band. Oh, yeah, no, those days are gone. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, no one wants to be in no our band to, anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and then when we signed with Loose, uh, Tom really wanted it to stay as Indigo Moss, even though we were a duo. Mm. Obviously, that's that's the, obviously the, the the wise commercial thing to do. And I, I, but I was so adamant I didn't want to do Clean it anymore break. that he sort of said, "Well, for continuity." Let's at least keep the moss. Yeah. And I've okay. Yeah. So we kept it. And so who produced that first, that first Trevor Moss? Hanover? Yes, the, yes, that was the Danny and Romeo one. Right. Okay. Yeah, and then um, yeah, and then me. So we always seem to have done one record with every label. We've never done more than one album with a label. But so, but is it Butterfly and Loose, and then after that was it self-released? Or no, it was it was Heavenly after that. Oh yeah. So that was probably mm. that came out really because of the Magic Numbers and. We were touring a lot with Fionn Regan at the time. He's on. So yeah. what album was that on? The which Fionn Regan album would that have been on? Ooh, it was the one he was on Heavenly. So it the was, Mercury um, nominated one. No, the one after that. Not the Hundred Acres of Sycamore. Yeah, yeah. that one. That is the most yeah. beautiful record. Yeah. Well, we toured all around Ireland with Fionn on that record, oh on, on that God. on that album tour. It was great. That's yeah. the only Fionn record that I've really connected with. Yeah, it's just stunning. Yeah, it's great. It's a brilliant album. Yeah, that was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a great tour. And yeah, we did like 30 shows in Ireland. Wow. And obviously because he knows everywhere and we were with him. Is he a fun chap or is he... He wasn't then actually, no. I think he, he was in a bit of a, a moment where... He, yeah. Well, the champs, the champs were playing as his back... The electric members of the champs. Sorry, some members of the champs were playing as his backing band. And so yeah, so we, went, we, did, we did a lot of touring that was us opening, then the champs, and then some of the champs as his, as his backing band. Mm. And then when we signed with Heavenly, because Jeff saw us saw us supporting at some of those shows, yeah. then we just we just toured just with Fion. But he was sort of dressing as Bob Dylan a lot, taking a lot of drugs and things, and wanting to just really wanting to be rock and roll, yeah. you know. And it, and it sort and it sort of wasn't. Time. I think he was really frustrated. He'd put, well, he probably just come off that Mercury nomination, <laughs> exactly, and he thought yeah. he was going to go up a set. Yeah. Yeah, and also Heavenly. Now they're doing incredibly well again, but at the time, they were sort of a bit down on their luck. Really, they they were part of co-op music, which right. was good in the short term as big organisation that had I lots think of Mushy other. Were also part exactly. Of so time, yeah. so what happened with us was. Well, they covered all of the all of the expenses for the label, so that they would pay the PR and they'd split the PR amongst. But they, effectively, what they did was they made a major label set up out as I'm yeah. sure you know, out of lots of indie labels. Yeah. So, and Heavenly didn't they couldn't control the A and R. So basically, when it came to the second record, everyone except one band or two on Heavenly got dropped. Wow. In fact, we were sort of dropped two weeks before the album even came out. Oh my god. And then. Um, 
you know, Jeff was in tears about it, but he couldn't do it. And, and that, that also meant that we couldn't sign with any other label that, that was part of co-op. <laughs> so did, but the album came out? The album yeah, did, it did come, come out, out, but sort of softly. Not much, not much effort. And it, was a, and it was a real shame. And so we were sort of forced into self-releasing for the third record because, yeah, not a sing, not, no other label that was part of co-op could sign you. So Jesus. that was pretty much every, every decent independent label in, in the country. But we sold... But then our next album that we did on our own, we sold way more on than any, other, like any of our other albums. So, yeah, oh, was that so, the so who, who, <laughs> who produced the Heavenly record? That was done by a friend of ours, Richard Corson, right. who Danny introduced us to because he's got a great analogue studio in, in Woodgreen. And in fact, it was through... Well, Ethan is boyhood friends with Ethan. So that was how we got to know Ethan. Oh, Wood Green. We recorded our first album in Wood Green at um, Livingston. Is that the church? No. It, all I remember is it's opposite in Iceland. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that, it's, it's, it's got a little old church is type it? thing. Where, where Magic Numbers and Michelle were recording. Lovely big Studio yeah, yeah. One room with a big yeah. SSL desk in there. R.E.M. did an album there. Maybe. And Smith did Panic there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did it at the... Just the corner. Yeah, the uh, chocolate, chocolate factory, factory. the big building just sort of on the next block to that. Oh. He's got, yeah, he's got a studio in there. Mm. Yeah. Because you've always, you've always had, you know, we haven't talked about Ethan Johns yet, but you've always had amazing producers, but yet you've got this ethos of wanting to do things live, create something magic, you know, preserve a performance on tape. Um, have you, are you good at letting yourselves be produced or are you often butting heads and throwing M&S sandwiches at each other. I love I'm, not, I'm not looking being, at you, Trevor, on no, purpose. No, 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 you should, no, you should be. <laughs> I, I find self-producing really frustrating. Yeah. I, I like doing it because I like the... Con- you know, I do like having the control of it, but I also know that when you're, when you're performing, you're the least qualified person in the world to hear... Yeah. really what's going on and so you, you want to be able to step away from it and not not have to deal with all the setting up and then switch your head into that's the problem performance mode untangling and leads and then trying to give a performance is just not oh and trying to sing a song whilst critiquing your guitar sound in your headphones at the same time that's where you get that's the red light fever that the analysis as you go yeah and 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 the pressure of delivering the record that if you're in charge of delivering the record you've, you're thinking about time and you're thinking about schedules and when you get in to do a take, you don't want to be thinking, we really need to get this done in an hour. Yeah. Because otherwise I know all the other stuff I've got to do. Because you've always been amazing mm. at sort of filming the process and, and, and there are times in those films that are really playful and really fun and there are times that just look so stressful I almost mm. have to stop the film. <laughs> yeah. yeah, when we're recording with other producers, that doesn't happen. Oh, I love it, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, I mean, putting yourself in incapable, incapable hands like yeah. Richard and Ethan, then we're... Completely relaxed. So how did you meet? How did he meet Ethan? So we, so I think we, we just sort of Ethan, knew him. Ethan, Ethan Johnson. Johnson. We, we just knew him because of Richard, and then we got his. We got a tour supporting him. I don't know when that would have been now. His records are great. Yeah, that was like in twenty thirteen ish, and we both turned up at the first show in Brighton, and we both turned up in old camper vans. Right. And we realised that neither of us had booked anywhere to stay for the whole tour, so we just convoyed around the country nice. for a couple of weeks. Um, got, yeah, got to be friends with him, and then um, sort of in the new year, maybe a bit later on, because then we went on tour with Tori Amos for a sort of good few months. And then, yeah. You guys have always done so well on tour supports. Yeah. Because sort of, I, the, the vibe that I sort of get from the Indigo, reading the Indigo Moss biog bits and is that you're always sort of slightly ahead of the curve or off the curve or slightly out of step with what's going on at that time. But yet you always 
seem to definitely land on your feet in terms of life stuff. I mean, you yeah, talk. Yeah, we're just like nice people. People like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're just nice. Give that impression. We're just helpful, yeah. nice people. Well, and like, I think, I think you can tra- It's cheap to travel, isn't it? You can so, travel yeah. too. Yeah, and and I think it's also that people do like. If you've got a big setup, you don't want another band on first no. sometimes. And also, people are quite used to having solo acts on first, so just a duo is a bit, yeah. a little bit different. Yeah. I think it's one of those things as well, like with any with any job, you know, the companies say you can't get the staff and the staff say you can't get the jobs. Yeah. It's um, every every tour manager has got a, you know, a horror story of a support band that has ruined the tour, you know, consistently. Yeah. And people people forget that, you know, being professional in those big environments when it's not it's not about you, you're there pretty, you're there to yeah. do a job. Yeah. And you, obviously you enjoy yourself, but you know, you've got to be you've got to be where you've got to be you know? and, and, and as soon as you get one big tour and people say alright they, they went, they, it, they went yeah. around the world with tour, they, they, they just makes a tour manager relax and yeah. think right they're not going to be no. and as much as know. it is about you finding a new audience and, and being part of the night actually your main job is just to get off on time yeah, you exactly. know what I mean exactly. <laughs> you can get off one minute before you, and then you'll get asked back yeah, yeah yeah exactly and the first few shows finish two or three minutes early mm-hmm. and then let friends let, for life yeah exactly <laughs> let them say oh, no, if you want to play on you can a bit you know yeah yeah. So so when, because I mean you've played the opera, you've played the Albert Hall. What 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 shows were they? Were they with Tory? That or? was all with Tory. Yeah. yeah. That, that was all with Tory. Yeah. And what was I mean? You said that you weren't flustered or overwhelmed by sort of the, the sort of the history and the and the rock and roll trivia rattling around mm-hmm. your brain. But with mm-hmm. those venues, did do you get did you get spooked? No, no. I mean, we were just so in, in the middle of it with it, because that was so we did six weeks around the UK and Europe, and they're all just really big concert that's halls. a long bloody time as well yeah though. and then we co- came back and they asked us to come and do the American tour whilst we were in Europe so we were in a dressing room in Rome I think trying to sort out American visas and oh gosh so then we got the visas in like a couple of weeks we had off and then went straight out to America so yeah by the time we were at the Opry we were, we were in the th- it's always the way isn't it if you, if you have a few weeks off then you have a gig wherever it is you can be a bit Flustered or overwhelmed mm. by it, but if you're in the middle of it and you're doing it every night, you get quite used to it. I think also those big venues, they're so they're so validating as a performer yeah. that it's easy to put that armor on. It's e- it's easy to stand. Well, I suppose it depends on the sort of person you are. I mean, some people sort of feel pressure in different ways, and if you think there's a big, literally a big stage, either you know actually or sort of metaphorically, no, no, either, you, you, either you have either you think am I worthy of this? Or you think the stage validates the point that you are worthy. Yeah, and, and so you've and already won before you even you, go on. You've already won, you stand there and you go, you know what? And, and that's that feeling, and it's a bit of a cliche, but that feeling of going, you know, I was, I was meant to do this. Yeah. You don't get that feeling of, I was meant to do this, playing to three people at the local pub, because you think, oh God, I hope not. But when you stand backstage at the, you know, program at the Royal Albert Hall, and also everything's in your favour. The sound's great. Yeah, the monitors are clear. Except, even yeah. if everyone in the audience thinks you're useless, if you think you're making a good sound, yes. you think, well, they're wrong. Yeah. You know? And I think all of us are slightly deluded in that sort of way. But st- standing in, the, in a big wing, especially if you're, you know, if you're well-oiled and you've been... You can, you can, the material is easy. You, yeah. know, you, you can do it with your eyes shut, literally. It's, um, no, it's, it's a great feeling. In fact, in some ways, you, it sort of becomes too casual. It's not until... We were talking about this the other day. But I can't remember standing in the wing at the Opry. I can't remember it. Wow. And I want to remember it. But you just, it's just another day. You just do it and you go... And it's not until a little while afterwards you go, I'd love to do that again. I know. Uh, 
yeah, I can't remember it. And also, but can you remember looking up at those big windows at the back or any of those? I things? have a, one very clear memory of that one because there was one song in that set that I always used to do on my own. So you would leave the stage, and in the uh, the Opry, in that song, I made a mistake in it, and that's the only thing I remember from the Opry. So staring up at the windows, and that I yeah, just trusted a line that no one probably wouldn't even notice. Yeah. That's the only real clear memory I have of that night. I think. Yeah. I, in fact, I, I remember. Um, uh, no, no, that was the Beacon. What? The guy. The Beacon Theatre. Yeah, we did two Rising. nights. We did two nights at the Beacon, and there was a guy, the guy who, um, you know, the guy who sits in the little, not the stage manager, but the, the guy from the theatre who, who sits with the monitor who does the, the, the monitor engineer. No, no. Um, uh, there's always a little booth in these big arenas with a man sitting with like with a, with a monitor. He's sort of like the safety guy who does the lights usually for the. Uh, uh, front of house, like the front of house, or if you have to turn on the emergency lights, oh, there's, there's okay. that person, someone sort the of theater, someone from the theatre, like, 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 in a blazer or something. I think a front of house manager. Yes, yeah, usually oh, like, see, yeah, okay, some, some kind of front of house manager, type, stage manager type person, not from the touring group, but you know from the theatre. And he was sat there watching the Tour de France on a little monitor. <laughs> I remember sitting with him in a little cupboard. But yeah, I, I remember so little of that, of that uh, tour really. But you, I mean, I'm sure you you must feel that maybe you don't that some of your best performances have been on stages rather than in studios have you never wanted to do a live record or not just a, record a concert like and so it serves like a greatest hits but actually to because I always find that I'm always so frustrated in studios that just trying to pull a performance out of myself especially when you're recording live I, I've always wondered about you know get the band, spend the money on the rehearsal room for two weeks, get the band really tight, and then do three nights in a beautiful studio, spend the £1,000 a day or whatever on the rack or Abbey Road or whatever, but get 50 people in. Mm -hmm. And then from the three nights, it's all mic'd up in the same way, and then maybe you pick, you know, the first three tracks of night two, and... Because there's something, there's something that happens on stage. It's, it's sort of half back against the wall, half you you feel sort of empowered by the situation have you ever have you ever thought about doing anything like that yeah we have especially because we have the lantern we've got sort of ready built a ready made audience yeah. and we play there and we play there every month yeah we did think before this last record if we took my tape machine up we could easily record play three different songs at the start of every Lantern every time and in the course of six months we'd, amazing. we'd you, you could put it all back together again yeah and and then have a have a you know have a multi-track for, for, for a whole for a whole record that is something we have we have considered we yeah. have a lot of the Tory tour recorded as well don't we yeah but it's yeah it's all yeah is it it's all it's DI old, guitar old, that's, that's, yeah, that's yeah, the problem it's rubbish isn't it mm. it's interesting I yeah, I mean the risk is we go into geeky territory, but I, I, you do, you, I do, you do see more and more people, especially you know people like Jeff Tweedy or who who do perform unplugged in front of a condenser mic on stage. I just don't know how they sort their monitors out and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But I mean, yeah, I've I've just always thought logistically how to do it, and it's always eventually defeated me in my head. Mm -hmm. I once saw a seventies late seventies performance with Loudon Wainwright, and he had sort of two two four one fours kind of spaced between his sort of his two hands mm -hmm. and so even though he was sort of walking around a little bit as long as they had the phase was sorted I sort mm -hmm. of thought well, maybe that's the way to do it yeah. you don't want to be sort of glued to the spot yeah you know what I mean I just can't I can't work it out we talk, we talk with Loudon as well that's a side, side point mm -hmm. but 
Um, have you seen the, the, the old uh, footage of Dylan shows where there are the mics on strings? Have you no, seen I can only. So, what kind of era would that have been? Because there was many globe mics in the yeah, 60s. Yeah, yeah, and, and in in the theatre they would have uh, strings. So the people on the balconies with a string each, and then one hanging from the ceiling. You're joking. And then they they would manually pull them to follow him around the stage. <laughs> That's hilarious. So if you watch back a lot of the old. You know, famous footage of him playing, you know, Newport or whatever. Like you're playing acoustically, yeah. yeah. You can see these little things like following him following around. Him about his little orbs. Yeah. You can imagine him just fucking with people with that. I can't use <laughs> exactly. That's amazing. So, um, so with the Ethan record, how how did that? How did how? Let's start that again. The Ethan record. How did that differ in terms of? the studio and how you recorded it was the same kind of approach yeah it was exactly the same exactly the same approach I imagine it you shared um, the same ethos in terms of yeah, how a record should be made uh, yeah absolutely we recorded all of our parts together live so we we spent the first few days just me and Hannah doing the takes and then all the other touches we added, we added on afterwards and then you sent him demos beforehand that he helped you pick songs or um, yeah yeah well we um, see so after having toured with him we then didn't see him for a while and then just before going to America we thought we'd get a little bit of advice about, you know, do's and don'ts, you know, that sort of thing. And we were, we sort of made a decision, even at that first tour, we saw every night he was given like 20, 30 demos and seed yeah. it every night. And we thought, you know what, let's just never talk to him about making a record. We can't yeah. afford him anyway, so let's yeah. just not, not, not mention it. And it's like, I say this a lot, but it's like having a mate who's a, who's a plumber. Like, you d- never don't, talk about don't ask him to look at your boiler. Yeah. Just don't ask him because everyone yeah. does. So when we were staying at his house, we... You just went to America. We went. This so cool. Well, (laughs) we weren't really trying because we thought, you know, it's just not going to happen. Also, we don't want to get into that conversation about money and stuff. So we thought, let's just not go near it. Let's wait for him to beg. Let's just be mates. Let's let's just be friends, you know. So, so we then, um, yeah, at breakfast that morning, he came down the stairs and he sat down at the kitchen table. He just said. When are you going to ask me to make your record? Oh, (laughs) So you see you coming from for years. Yeah. Yeah. So, So then, um. So yes, we went to America and we sort of been talking, talking when to do it, and then the following, uh, that would have been sort of summertime when we were in America, and then in the January, yeah, and then in the January we went to his house for a couple of weeks and just recorded it at, wow. his, at his house, yeah. Wow. And what, did he sort of mix as you go, and you know, what, did you sort of keep monitor mixes and? Well, we recorded for the first five days and then mixed for the mixed and added put touches in for the. Yeah. And know, did he play on it as well? Second. Yeah, he played quite a few things on it. Yeah, he did an amazing drum. He's such an amazing drummer. He is an amazing drummer. He's an amazing yeah. drummer. And I love that fourth Laura Marling record where it's called I think Once I Was an Eagle. Yeah. It's just kind of her and him. Yeah. Um, he is an amazing drummer. Oh, he's so good. And we, we, we had a track, the last track on that record, uh, A Better Day, and it was so all over the place. Like, you know, when it's just the two of you playing, you don't have to play. You know, it speeds up, slows down. Yeah, it yeah, doesn't matter. Yeah. It's, it's meant to do that, yeah. you know. But then we thought it would be quite nice to make this into a bit more of a skiffly sort of end to the record so let's try and put some drums on it and you couldn't even play a tambourine along to it it was awful like it was and, the, and he just went in then his little room is like in a little outhouse and then the control room you can't see through to it you can only, you can only hear people oh my God. All, all the cables are run under the lawn so it's a bit sort of virtual so we're sort of in one room listening and he sort of said okay let's put some mics out you know in true sort of John's style there's like one mic you know yeah in the next paddock, you know, to yeah. record the drum, <laughs> to record the drums, but somehow sounds amazing. Yeah, and uh, never works when you do it yourself. No, it doesn't. And then uh, he's just like, okay, just roll it once. So we, you know, we played it through once. I can hear him playing along. I said, yeah, 
I was like, what do you mean? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, we're done. <laughs> we came in and played it back. And it's like, how have you done that? It's just, it's just amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. It, and were you a fan? Were you a fan of his records before, or were you a fan of his original material, or were you a fan of his dad, or what was your entry entry point to him? We didn't know his own material that much until we did the tour together, and obviously then having toured together. So was that the first one, not the Silver Liner one? That was the second one, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was the first album. His first album we did. No, there we were toured there with. were two before Silver Liner because there was which the, one was produced by Ryan Adams? That was what, that Silver Liner. Um, when was no, it like an acoustic record? There's the Reckoning. The reckoning, yeah. I think right. the reckoning might have been with the, the strings the and the, they'd have done a pack Sam at, at his yeah. Mm, which one has um, this modern London on it? Because they recorded that on the porch outside. You can hear all the LA sort of noise going on down the street. Um, Some manic googling here. Yeah, because I think his first record was the if not now then when. Mm. And the, oh yes. So, and then then the reckoning, I think. Independent years, 91, so that's kind of an anomaly. I think, mm. he, I, I think he made that with someone enormous, like Graham Nash or something, I can't remember. Mm. If not now, then when, 2012, The Reckoning, 2014, and Silver mm. Liner. And then the yeah. new, there's a new one out, but it's yeah. only, maybe it's not out yet. Or it's, it is out, yeah, with, with the band. That but it's, out, it's not on Spotify, it's no. just you have to buy yeah. the record, yeah, yeah. with the Moondogs. Mm-hmm. And is that the same drummer as Noel Gallagher's Black Eyed Dogs. Black Eyed Dogs, Black Eyed Dogs yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and then the new one, Fair Lady London. Yep. That came out this year. Yep. That came out. Like, and that's year. the first time you have self-produced and self-recorded. No, actually, we've or? missed an album, haven't we? Because have we? Expatriate was our fourth album that we did with Ethan. We did our third album, Le Femme yeah. Fontenay. We did ourselves. Oh, did you? Okay. In France on mm. the tape machine. Exactly. Oh yes, I've exactly seen the, the film for that one. That we yeah. Did uh, new one, yeah. And what made you want to go back to that process? Was it needs must, or was it actually you quite loved having holding all the cards? I, th- I think it was. I think it was, I think it was a bit of both. I yeah. think it, well, we didn't really plan to make another record. I think that was the main thing. Mm. I'd sort of decided to. Performing's never been what I've liked doing, really. Really. Yeah. Despite the I've amount always, of live stuff that you've done. Yeah, it's always been the writing and the recording, really. And then. About two years ago, also when Jesse was really small, yeah. it was quite hard to play anyway. I decided, decided, you know, that that's enough. Also, we'd made a good record with Ethan, you know, and we put it out just before Jesse was born, mm. and we couldn't really get a proper release for it. We tried to self-release it between us and Ethan, but it all, you know, nothing, it, it didn't really come to anything at all, really. Mm. So just sort of, when creatively you feel like I don't know if we're going to make a better record than this, you know. It's made by Ethan. It's a great record, and you sort of think I don't, and I'm not really enjoying performing much anymore. So I decided about that's it. I'm not going to play anymore. I was going to. Hannah's always loved performing, so I was going to just write mm. write songs for her. And um, and is that when Hannah? Is that when you did some, you did a sort of six months on your own or something? You yeah, I just did, we just did a little EP and did a few odd shows and things. Didn't I? And was that mm. just recorded at home on the same tape machine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then, how was that? That must have been quite weird to have a whole microphone to yourself. Yeah, well, I mean, like, like I said earlier, we always, we've always done one song in the set when I've yeah. been on my own, so yeah. it wasn't too bad. And he was always within eyesight somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And how do, how do you feel about... Because the new album's quite new, isn't it? So how do you feel... Have you got any distance on it? Does it? Do you feel good about it? Or do you feel that actually having been so invested in every single detail that actually you still don't really know what it is? I, yeah, I think the latter. I don't think I really know what it is anymore. People sort of say, like Dale last night, I was telling him that, you know, 
it's always this moment in a record cycle you, you know, the, the initial press flurry has sort of come yeah. and gone and the first tour has come and gone and then you're yeah. sort of thinking right second push creatively it's very difficult to get up for it again yeah. and Dale was going like you know it's sort of be typical for you to make the best record you've ever made and then you quit <laughs> and I said <laughs> yeah but they sort of said you know people like the record and I yeah I don't know what it is really at the moment I don't Dell runs know. Music's Not Dead, yeah, which is the yeah, amazing yeah, record sorry. shop down in, in Bex yeah. Hill here. And do, you, do you ever like your own records? Um, yeah, I'm quite, I'm quite weird. I, I often, li- when I'm demoing, I'll listen to demos a lot. Um, but I've got this weird, I think I've got, I've got this weird thing where almost as soon as I've written the song, I've forgotten how or, or where or when I wrote it. So I think I, I can enjoy it in quite a, in a, with a degree of separatism if you know what I mean mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't put my record on at a party <laughs> but I can I, ha- I, I have to encourage myself to pat myself on the back otherwise I feel like I would there, there, I think there are moments in a record making thing like when you listen to when you listen to the master for the first time in the car I love listening to music in the car. Yeah. I just feel it's so cinematic. Like every windscreen is like a TV, and you know, I just mm-hmm. the music sounds better in the car. Or like we you know when you go to Metropolis or Abbey Road and you listen to the mastering, or the vinyl gets cut. I can enjoy my records then, but yeah, no, I wouldn't. I also, I also find you know, but I, by the time by the time the album's finished, you probably listen to it about a thousand times. Yeah, and then if you make a film and then you make the videos, <coughs> you're really sick to the back teeth of it. But yeah, I just find that I just become so untrusting of what anyone says about about it. I only want to hear negative feedback. I've yeah. I've I've as I think as a as a protection mechanism, a self preservation mechanism. I've more and more. I'm giving more of the process over to other people and trying to trust them. I mean, when I first started, ironically, when I knew absolutely nothing about the process, <laughs> I somehow had opinions on what an acoustic guitar should sound yeah. like. And you know, the first two albums we made with a guy called Simon Askew, who was him and Mitty were the main engineers and made a Bell Four. We met him when we did a Radio One session, and you know, he was probably in his early fifties then, and his everything I later realized that his sort of production style was very late 80s you know this the sound of the compressors where what an acoustic guitar sounds like um, what drums sound like reverb choices um, and I think we sort of learned to sort of come to a compromise together but now I'm quite happy you know someone ch- I you know this last record you know Tim the producer chose the songs the engineer chose the mics, the mixer mixed it, the mastering engineer mastered it. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's the only way that I can get through with any degree of sanity. Mm-hmm. I think it's the only way. I mean, Ethan never self-produces. Doesn't he? No, he, he, he's, he knows it's a terrible idea, and it is. <laughs> it's, yeah. um, he never self-produces. And, he, and even at live gigs and things, we'll be doing a li- we're doing little shows on that tour, and the sound guy was, you know, some young kid working in a pub, you yeah. know, and technical problems and Ethan's you know one of the best engineers in the world he never said anything wow. not once because a lot of them didn't even know who he was or what yeah. he could do all they know is that they just sold 14 just tickets some, for the gig tonight e- exactly yeah. there was only once when the guy physically couldn't make the PA make any noise that Ethan just sort of said you know I, I know a little bit about these things if, <laughs> if you if you need any help just let me know 
but if you don't, you know, it's perfectly. You know, oh I'm, I'm, I'm sure you know you know what you're doing. Yeah. And he, yes, even at live gigs, he doesn't give any input to the, the guy to help. You know, it, I, I think it's absolutely right. I think you get the right people. You pick the right people to do the job, and you just let them do it. I think you are happier and you enjoy the process more if you let them do their job. Mm. But. Um, I don't know. Are there any other producers that you've worked with in the past? Would you ever work with them again? Um, well, we'd work with Ethan. We didn't ask him to make this one. Yeah, we just didn't ask him. Nothing. We shouldn't have asked him. We worked with Richard a couple um, of times now. I'm sure we'll do that work well yeah. again at some point as well as Ethan. I mean, what, yeah. what, keep, what keeps you going now? Is it, is it the writing or is it the performing or is it, do you love getting the, is it the end, is it the whole process? Do you love getting the finished CDs back or is it the buzz of just sitting on a sofa and half an hour later having something that didn't exist before? Mm-hmm. I don't really know. I think we talk about this quite a lot because self-analysis in this household. I, I always, I always think that people that are really meant to be artists are always reluctant. People that are in, just into the idea of being musicians. I've never met a good one. Right. You know? Yeah. It's always the it's always the people who you think, well, I don't think I should be doing this, but for some reason I just end up doing it. You know. Yeah. It's um. That's, I, I think it's a really good attitude to think every record's your last, your last one. It means you start another one. It does feel like you've been thinking that since 2007. Always, <laughs> always. <laughs> That's yeah. it, I'm leaving London. That's it, I'm leaving Kent. Yeah. <laughs> that's it, I'm self-producing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, you know, I moved every three years growing up. I get itchy really quickly. How long have you been in Hastings? Seven years. And I guess you've ever lived anyway. Well, that's the same yeah. as us, I think. I think we moved in... When did I meet Sarah? 2011. I think we moved into Mercator in October 2012. Yeah, and we live just around the corner. That's so weird, isn't it? Mm. How bizarre. So were you on? Were you on the? What's it called? Stanhope Terrace? Or no, we were on Maze Hill, just okay. by the park there, by the St Leonard's Garden. Right. <laughs> um, that's so weird, isn't it? And then were you there until you moved here? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because we've been. We went then George Street. And we went Grand Parade. And we went Warrior Square. Mm-hmm. I actually moved a lot. Yeah, we're just orbiting around you. So. When, did you come, when did you come here? <laughs> we've got we've got this flat. Um, I think I think it's been three years, but we didn't. I think we completed on like the twenty second of December, so moved in in the first week of January. Yes, yeah, so we moved in three years ago in, in November. <laughs> it's so <laughs> strange. So will there? So <clears throat> what does the future hold? I mean, will Lantern continue? God knows. We want to. I said God no. We want to quit that every month as well. We're, we, are, we are. We are people who like to move on. Uh, well, for an imminent future, Lantern will continue. We're touring in May. We've got some festivals. Great. What are you What are you doing festival-wise? Um, there's a few in the pipeline. That May. Well, doing um. Doing Port, Port Elliot. Elliot this year, oh, which fantastic. would be nice. A few yeah. other ones that are sort of being confirmed now and will be announced soon. Nice. And then Trevor starting a grunge band. You're joking. No. Called? Can't tell you. <laughs> Is it a reformation? Um, it's a revelation. <laughs> Who's in the van with you? Can't tell you. Are they famous people? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> you just don't know. <laughs> it, it's it's Marcus and the other one. Yeah. <laughs> that other one is great though. What a guy. What yeah, a great guy. Yeah, yeah. So, but are you actually selling a grunge band? Uh, let's see. <laughs> let's see if that yeah. works out. Yeah. Um, can we get a song? Yeah. yeah, sure. What do you want to play? Yeah, what do you want to hear? What should oh, we do? I, I made... I, I listened to that... I think I played Lantern twice uh, before the new... At the end of last year. 
and I think you gave me the CD after the first one um, and I listened to it like non-stop and I listened to it again before we um, were going to do it and I've got so many different disparate references here I've got Velvet's Lou Reed Beautiful South <laughs> Neil Young CSNY um, you got we should have gone dancing I find so depressing I find mm. that because I so know that I've, I know that story, you know what I mean? That mm-hmm. kind of really claustrophobic kind of night. And when, when you're having a, yeah, when someone's having a fight and they're in there even, they're dressed ready to go and it's that <laughs> like, that's it, we're not going out anymore. <laughs> I just, I so remember that when I was younger, just sort of pacing around the block and you just feel like the whole world's falling apart. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that one a bit a bit too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, too. so what 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 are your favourites on the on the album in terms of to play live? Um, Fair Lady London's a good one, I think. What is that? Where does that phrase come from? Um, is it a, is it a no. naval reference or is it no? Is it's it? just you know plucked from plucked from the ether <laughs> from somewhere. Yeah, because what, what I mean. Is it what's your relationship with London emotionally? I mean, do you do you mm. miss it, or do you ever wish you were back? Or well, I think I think the song's really about that feeling of even when we're in London, you that sort of feeling like let's leave, let's leave. It's not working. We're not enjoying ourselves. We're yeah. skin. We're living in a rat-infested room above a pub. You know, <laughs> all this sort of stuff. And you just stay and you hang on. And yeah, that feeling of the parties going to get better it's going to pick up and it's really not you know but then now living here you know it does still cross your mind to think about you know what would have happened if we'd stuck it out you know it is it is sort of a a different league you know we love it down here and life is life is better but a bit of me still is living in a a bed sit in London just (laughs) trying and trying and trying you know it's um yeah maybe you mean in terms of music well, well, I suppose everything. Life. You know, yeah. It is a. But I mean, you referenced it a couple of times. Like, um, I think you referenced it in terms of the grunge band. You said, mm. you said if we hadn't done more than three gigs, you know, we could have done it. Yeah. But like, what what is doing it? What is success f- for you guys? Sure, is is it a financial thing, or surely, no. surely there's a huge creative satisfaction in what you do, and it's a self-sustaining mm. one. It's another thing we always talk about. Last month. We felt satisfied because we were busy doing gigs and it's being busyness, out. It's busyness, isn't it? This month, yeah. we're quiet, so we're going, oh, what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> a couple of next months, we'll be busy. Next week, we've got some gigs, we'll be busy again. Yeah. But, it's d- but I suppose, I mean, the thing, the, the thing is, the music is meant to make you feel alive. Yeah. But unfortunately, when you play music, like we all do, I hope trying to make a living out of it, it's about repetition. Yeah. So trying to make those two things work together constant repetition but it's still making you feel alive every time do you are you That's quite the, are you, do you do you switch up your set list every night or are you quite you sort of have to work out what works and what the show in air quotes is and do, are you are you quite good at pushing yourselves through that repetition or we, we would normally like on a big yeah a big if, show. if we're touring you know ourselves and we're playing a good hour hour and a half we sort of do it in, in chunks like you normally have similar you get into a, ru- a routine of the first two or three openers, and you normally have a There's few. There's lankers, aren't there? Ones yeah. that definitely work there. And, and ones you can swap in and, and then, you, yeah. then, then you have patches where you know you're approaching the part of the set 
where you can kind of go right let's do that let's or songs that have a story might work better or, yeah yeah okay. things that are pro- or just whatever mood you're in yeah. you know but usually involves me going right we're playing this and I was going no no no, no we're not doing that and then we just start <laughs> I haven't not played, agreed I haven't played this for ages oh, I've played this for four years well, I'm not playing it looks like we're playing it <laughs> what, and, and before we hear a song quickly what can we have your best and worst gig memories ever Ooh. Oh, I know you're going to go worse first because that's, yeah, that's just the Trevor, Trevor and Hannah way. Well, I nearly died on stage once. Oh, that was a good one. That was a really good one. Is that a great gig memory or a bad gig memory? Uh, <laughs> you tell me. This, this was on the Good, the Bad and the Queen tour. We were supporting the Good, Bad and the Queen on their, first when album. their first album came out. And we were in Wolverhampton. What a band to be travelling with, though. Yeah, it was fun. Not or f- or sure, was it horrible being on tour with your record label bus? Well, no, we, we, we were on the crew bus. Right, which was more fun, and um, so they're they're, they're, they're more debauched. <laughs> yeah, that was mad, and um, so yeah, yeah. The first night, yeah, Paul Simonon was was lovely. You know, what first, a guy. Was, was the first tour he'd done since the Clash. Wow. And he just and we were sort of a bit nervous. He was quite you know? excited. Wasn't he? he was really excited. He oh. sort of ran up to us and grabbed, gave us a big hug, and went. <laughs> it was just really he was so excited and wow Damon wasn't quite so nice but Paul was lovely and that we often talk about this we were on um, ha- having breakfast on South Sea Pier because um, often because the tour was of places like South Sea Pier and like yeah. civic halls and yeah, places yeah. like that in the morning you know, the catering would be set up you know in some weird little place and yeah. we sat there having breakfast sort of dawned on you, sort of sat there having breakfast with a member of the Clash and a member of the Wu-Tang Clan. And, Who from uh, the Wu-Tang Clan was in it? Eslam. I didn't know that. Because he, he was Mr. Whippy on the first record. So he just came and guessed so on he, one So he came on just for the encore. He went on the whole tour. But Tony Allen to also on. from Fella Cootie Band yeah. is the drummer as well, yeah. which is incredible. We didn't hang out with him that much. He kept himself to himself a little bit. Yeah. He's a bit um, older, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And um, so, yeah, so we... I'll tell this story instead now here. So we we did um a gig after the Good, the Bad, and the Queen tour at the Water Rats with our cause we did we did that tour just as the Bloody two of us with our with our ma- our mandolin player, but we did our first full band show after that tour at the Water Rats, and um, Eslam had said he was going to come. Said, All right, sure. And obviously you can imagine you know new bluegrass band the audience are sort of exclusively you know. 21, 18, 21 year old white kids yeah. and then after about the first song Eslam um, in full Wu-Tang regalia walks in with a friend nice. um, and the two of them wander in and you could see people sort of going is, uh, is, is it? And, and we saw him in the distance he was like hey 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 and then uh, yeah there was a, a, a review after it saying I think they, so it said Indigo Moss who can count among their fans the Wu-Tang Clan that's amazing <laughs> that is amazing yeah. you were going to say about the harmonica oh yeah that on that tour we were in Wolverhampton and it was, we were in about three songs in and a bit of one of my harmonica reeds when I was playing it snapped and went straight down my throat oh my god and it went straight in the back of my throat Could you, had it gone down or yeah it went straight can't... into my throat and I couldn't breathe I was, I was choking and there's I, a joke there somewhere about I, I know. <laughs> exactly. and so I was looking at the other two sort of 
I didn't know what to do. Like, my breath had completely gone. And I sort of st- walk backwards and sort of stagger backwards a little bit, and they're looking at me at what's going on. Then I sort of take the guitar off and sort of drop it, and then walk straight back through the through through the wings. Oh and then the mandolin player sort of finished it up and said, "Thanks everyone." And tried to pretend that was the end of the show, and they all. And then, so I'm sat backstage like gasping for air, and then then all the members of the Good, the Bad and the Queen sort of walk and step over me as I'm sat in the corridor like, <laughs> and they just sort of completely walked over me and then um, eventually I managed to sort of dislodge it and you know got my breath back a oh bit my God. and then a review came out after the gig saying that um, the support band uh, the lead singer had um, had a a prima donna moment and <laughs> pretended to be um, it, it, it sort of protesting against the overuse of the smoke machine and uh, pretended to choke and stormed off in a very melodramatic fashion <laughs> oh my god yeah so that's the mm. worst one yeah you, well, should, you should probably do a good one I don't know I can't think of a specific good one so someone who's played the Grand Ole Opry in the old Royal yeah, Albert Hall yeah. says, I don't know, I have any decent gig memories. No, I mean, they're all, that's what they're saying, they're all decent. Yeah, it's special. Yeah. yeah but, I mean, that, I think, yeah, one of the highlights has got to be on that tour, tour, touring around America, some of those amazing big theatres. Yeah. They're pretty special. Yeah, I think it's, it's any time you're, you're a long way from home, yeah, all the sort of music mythology doesn't really affect us that much, I don't think, but it's just sort of being in Warsaw. And going like you know, yeah. like the Warsaw Congress Hall, and going like, you know, how did we get here? Or sort of playing in Washington, right next to the White House, and just thinking like, you know, how did this happen? Or I remember I, I did a couple of like nowhere near as big as your shows, but I I remember doing, I think it was around the time I did. It was after the the boat stopped, which I did the acoustic records with Sarah. Actually, I don't think we'd even done that, recorded them yet. But I'd sort of said to a promoter friend of mine, um, you know, can you throw me some gigs? And he threw me the four or five Dexys shows, <laughs> and. Um, it was Guildhall in Southampton and, you know, it's a sort of two and a half thousand. And I was on my own for the first time since sort of 2006. And when you're on those big stages, the thing I found it really difficult to create is just any kind of magic atmosphere. You know what I mean? Mm. If you're in a little room or a living room show, you can just stop and everyone sort of stops breathing. And you've got that control over the, over the room. It's like when you play Lantern at Printworks, or you can do that, but there's just sort of a bubbling of people finding their seats when you're the opening act, and you go for the dramatic pause, and you might even stretch it out a bit longer than you should have, and nothing stops. You sort of feel like you're playing in an airport hangar or something, you know what I mean? And people are just on their way. And yeah, some, some, sometimes. And then I found it so... Di- I, f- I, found, I found I had some really existential moments mm-hmm. um, in in those big, because you can't see the audience, the lights are really strong. And I almost felt like I was watching myself play and I couldn't, I found it really difficult to be present in the moment. I was so overwhelmed by the whole thing and also so sort of mortified as the whole, as it was happening, if you know what I mean. I found myself totally freaked out by it. I, th- I think being present is that is that we talk we talk about it and we used to use that word a lot. I've got, I've got a piece of paper in my in my guitar case that I look at every day before I do a gig and it says wake up because mm. mm. I remember especially playing acoustic music playing with a band you know the first thing comes in your right ear goes deaf from the cymbal and then you're like oh! mm. but when you're playing on your own I, you can daydream through a set so easily yeah especially yeah. when you're doing a tour and you're playing every night yeah. quite we so often 
yeah, you find, yeah, you think you're playing in front of thousands of people mm. and you can be thinking about something completely different while the words are coming out of your mouth. It's really yeah. scary. And that's the effect of adrenaline. It's designed to make your brain thinks faster, which makes time seem slower. Yeah. But it means that ever, generally, you know, you start tuning up and you think, oh, I've been tuning up for ages and ages and ages. You yeah. haven't. It's been like four or five seconds. Yeah. Just, I remember after the first Tori Amos show... And we thought, you know, everything was great, great yeah. first show. And yeah. then the tour manager said, you guys are really great. But he said, just chill, just relax. Yeah. And, and I thought we were relaxed. And, uh, but then you listen to like a recording back and you go, like, it feels like you're rushing. But I remember thinking at the time, we're taking too long about everything. Yeah, I was exactly the same. When I was, when I, when I was sitting in the travel lodge the next morning and you go through Instagram with all the videos from last night, everything's so fast. Exactly. That but at the time, a strange thing think, to your head. Yeah, at the time you think really steady and then you look at the Instagram video it's like one of my favourite gig memories actually is the very very last Tori Amos show which was in Florida Miami and um, at the Fillmore yeah and the very last song we did because we always used to we still sometimes sometimes play a Charlie Parr song called Cheap Wine and we didn't always play it at the end of every gig but luckily we did at the end of that gig it was our very very last song on the Tory tour and all of the crew came on behind us all the Tories crew came on behind us with loads of cheap wine during uh, the cheap boxes, wine. With, with, with boxes, boxes of, of wine, wine and started yeah. and we so nearly didn't play that song last I don't know what they would have done if we'd <laughs> I, think one, I think one of them was going to shout from the wings to play it <laughs> oh that's so nice wasn't it Tori's birthday as well? Oh yeah, it was Tori's 50th birthday during that tour. Are you so, so, were you were you mm. sort of ever in touch prior to that tour? Was it sort of an agent thing that hooked you up for that no, tour? We, we saw the tour was going out like eight months before it was. Um, it's we realised she was on ITB, so and we used to be on ITB and just have toured with people who are on ITB. So no, some of the agents there yeah. asked to be put forward, and then Tori and her manager listened to a load of people. Oh pick, wow! Us. Cool. And then her, she, so we did, as I said, we did Europe and her crew sort of petitioned the manager to take us to America oh nice, nice. that's so nice mm. well, thanks so much for trawling through this extensive musical career <laughs> this is your life um, you've got your own label now and all your past catalogue is on there isn't it so what's the label called well we have we have a thing called the APRC which is the, the Anglophone Recording Company which has really been a production house mainly mm, and, not and, really a label and the APRC has made makes things for other people and make videos and produce other people sure. as well and so what's, so the, we what's have, the website for that one um, just if, uh, the APRC.co.uk is the, okay. like the production thing. So a couple of le- a couple of our records we have put out just under that yeah, thing, that. but it's mainly it's a, mainly the, a production. Yeah. In fact, no, just La Firm was on that. Well, Expatriate was joint. Um, joint that and Three Crows, which is Ethan's. Yeah. yeah. But this re- new this latest album is actually uh, signed to Maiden Voyage Recording Company, okay. which is Danny from Danny and the Shadows uh, gotcha. and Del Day's label. They're based over in Lewis. They have Union Music Store now. Yes. So yeah. So so our label is not really a, a label as such. It's more of a production house. But that's probably the best place to come and go and buy CDs and seven inches and like. For our stuff, yeah, we just go to our website or yeah, yeah just or go, go through our website, yeah. 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 And um, for new uh, Trevor Moss and Hannah Lou fans, mm-hmm. what's your best record? This one. <laughs> no, it's not the this next one. one. <laughs> yeah, the next one. Um. No, I think this one. I don't know. God knows. What do you think? You listen to some of them. I think the new one. Yeah. I think the new one's great. But I also really love the Ethan one. Is that Expatriate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the I still haven't even. I still haven't heard Indigo Moss. Was that on your? Is that on your? Is that on the APRC? No, no. Um, I can't, can't get it. You could probably get that on Music Magpie for a couple of quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's before streaming. Out so. of press, not it's not digitally distributed. So yeah. Yeah. you could get it. Yeah. yeah. 
Too, too, mm. too many painful memory, memories for Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what should we, should, what should we hear? Fair Lady London? Let's hear Fair Lady London. Yeah, All right, London. cool. Yeah. Should we go for one? Yeah, so we're going to do the acapella bit first. I'm leaving in the morning I've made up my mind This time I'm not returning And all of the wrongs you've ever said and done to me Shall become But a memory song, your rank and riddled melody shall become but a memory How long, how long did I toil breaking my nails through the spit and the spoil and every morsel that was ever promised to me has become but a memory I'm bound for the garden I've served my time I've earned my pardon when the sunshine gently washes over me the great age shall become for listening everybody massive thanks to Trevor and Hannah for coming round um, on a Saturday afternoon and massive thanks to Jesse for being an all round legend and Spider-Man obsessive um, I hope you enjoyed the chat I hope you enjoyed the live song if you dig it make sure you go to um, the Trevor Moss and Hannah Lou website and uh, order everything on back catalogue I think there's limited stuff on Spotify if any 
Um, so make sure you support them. They are um, true indie artists, and I think they ship and pack everything out of their house. So um, make sure you uh, are generous with your money. Throw it all at them. Um, thanks, everybody. Maybe see you at a show at the end of this week if you're around. Uh, what did I say? Huddersfield, Stockton on Tees, and St Albans. You're screaming at the radio. St Albans, yes, St Albans, the horn. Thanks, everybody. And what else do I have to say? Uh, no, nothing really. Have you pre ordered the album? Yes. Have you bought tickets for a gig? Yes. Could you buy tickets to another gig? That would be great, if you, if you don't mind. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks so much, everybody. See you soon.